0: Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 35 through 49. That's the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 35 through 49. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and you can open it to page 904. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to
1: God. Good morning. As we go into the message today and continue on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's start with a prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast, the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, throughout the past weeks, we've seen Paul build on this amazing chapter on the resurrection. And now we are nearing the climax and conclusion of a mountain of a chapter in this letter. And today's section is like the snow cap, or the cornice of the mountain, and it's pretty spectacular. And I have four points that we'll get to, and there's, and I'll, I'll repeat it again, but it's analogy, arrangement, associations, and archetype. Analogy, arrangement, associations, and archetype. Quadruple A. So, mind you, the Corinthians were given into the prevalent Greek thought of the time. Resurrection wasn't something that philosophically, or even intellectually, was respectable. And as a result, we saw the people in the Corinthian church slowly give way to these secular ideologies. Eventually, to come now to where we are in the letter, where people who claim to even follow Christ are denying the resurrection. Paul in this chapter decisively and conclusively addresses those that would claim such things. The fact is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that is proof positive that there is and will be a resurrection. This is what the witnesses in the first century, 2,000 years ago to now, We, who also attest to the veracity of the Scripture's claims, have and are doing. To say that you believe in Christ is to believe in the person and work of Christ. And if you believe in the person and work of Christ, your trajectory and goal is changed. The reasons and even the way you rejoice change to the way you grieve and mourn, they're also changed. Twenty years ago from yesterday, our nation took a dramatic shift in our understanding of safety and security. Fear gripped many, but so did a resolve and a temporary camaraderie that we hadn't seen before amongst those in New York City and in our nation. There was a motto that was said, and it became our nation's war cry. The motto was, never forget. And now it lines our posters, stickers, and graphics on social media. And I think it's absolutely important for us to remember. I think it's absolutely important for us to remember the shocking images of people falling from 102 stories up. I think it's important for us to remember how people jumped out of the buildings because the flames reached such intense heat levels that they would rather jump out and plummet to their deaths rather than stay inside. And I'm sure many of us remember many stories, and I encourage people to continue to read stories, to continue to read accounts of those in 9-11. I've shared mine countless. I, I feel like it's countless times ever since I've started preaching. Um, so every time it comes to this weekend, I share my account as well. But it also brings complexities in life. What we recognized was even in this horrifically evil time, there were firemen who would run the other way, telling you, son, go that way, and they would go into the building instead. We see the complexities that evil had brought, and yet no one would say that was a day of triumph. They would continue to agree that that was a day of evil. 9-11 is one horror of a tragedy that I hope we never forget because the horrors of evil and sin are especially highlighted when we see the resulting images. Remember it. And remember the solution that our Lord prescribes when the people asked him also in that time, in his day, about the falling of the tower of Siloam. In Siloam... There was a tower that fell, and it killed people, and the resulting deaths had people question, why did this happen? Is it because of sin? Is it because they did something wrong? Were they more sinful than we were? Why would such a thing happen? And our Lord answered in this manner in Luke chapter 13. He said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, it doesn't matter if you've lived or you think you've lived a good life or even a bad one. You may think that you've lived a fruitful life. Maybe you lived a fruitless life, a fulfilled life, or an unfulfilled life. What the Lord reminds us to do is repent, turn from your sin, and turn back to God. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn back to God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus also tells his disciples that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so, after he says this, so if you're able to hear, that means God is opening your ears to hear the truth. And if you have ears to hear, this is how he continues. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he says this, And I will raise him up on the last day. This is John 11:44. Again, with Christ, there is a promise of resurrection. Christ, being the first fruits of the resurrection, has shown us that this will happen. It will happen for every single human being. In Daniel 12:2, this is what it says about the resurrection. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We will all be resurrected, some to eternal glory, and others to eternal shame. For the believer, God makes it clear that he will not desert the body in the grave, but he will raise it up from the dead. The body will not be discarded. The body is not to be discarded. It is not merely a shell that houses your quote-unquote real self. Your body, the body that you've been given, belongs to the very essence of who you are as a man or woman created by God. But the people in Corinth did not want to adopt these doctrines. They would say things like, I don't want to sound dumb. Remember when Paul went to the Areopagus in Athens? The greatest thinkers and minds of the world would gather there. And all they did was discuss ideas. All they did was talk and listen, talk and listen. And he, in the Areopagus, in Athens, would stand up and he would dress, address the Athenians. And this is what he would say in Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all By raising him from the dead. And when they had heard about this, they were listening to him because he was giving this speech and it was good. They're like, yeah, this is good. I'm tracking. I'm following. The reasoning is good. And right when he talked about the resurrection of the dead, it says in Acts 17, some mocked. This was a laughable notion. People had thought that the body was a hindrance to your true self. Especially in Gnostic thought, the body was considered evil, something that you had to throw off. The spirit was considered good. Matter is evil. As if matter was somehow disconnected, or you could disconnect it with the spirit. And this thought process also is prevalent today in our Western world. Filling up every space in our media masses are being led into confusion that you could be one gender on the outside and at the same time be a different one on the inside now gender is something understood to be assigned at birth as if assignment was arbitrary instead of gender being objectively observed and in the same way, the Greeks taught that since matter is evil, sooner the sooner you could get rid of this body, get rid of the matter, the better. And some philosophers have taught that once the body dies and starts to decay, the spirit would go off and join this universal blob deity. The only trouble, well, there are many troubles, but I would think the big trouble with this thought is that When the individual gets lost, when the individual gets lost, there goes justice. When we go to court, we are tried for the crimes that we have individually committed. I don't get tried for the crime that Sally did in Oklahoma. I get tried for the crime that I commit. Unfortunately, we are losing this basic notion as well. So now justice has to be social or societal. Who cares about the individual getting crushed as long as the collective gets some? And there was plenty of a similar kind of confusion going on in the world 2,000 years ago as well. People always think this is a new notion. It's not new. It's old, and it continues to creep up again and again in our society as we continue to embrace sin. Despite claims otherwise, the body is inextricably tied To our souls. And Christian thought is in marked contrast with those of Judaism. There was a Jewish scholar, a scribe, and it's attributed to him. He wrote the Apocalypse of Baruch. And on the question, if there will be any change on men being resurrected, the answer written was this. The earth shall then assuredly restore the dead. It shall make no change in their form, but as it has received, so it shall restore them. That means the resurrected body would be identical to the body that you have now. The Greeks would listen to this Jewish thought and they would mock them. Celsus would say that the bodily resurrection was, quote, the hope of worms for what soul of a man would any longer wish for the body that had already rotted, unquote. They mocked this idea. If you die at 95, what are you going to come up and be resurrected as a frail old man? Who wants that? And Paul will have none of that, however. He won't have either the Greek thought that, was said, that said that the body was evil, that needed to be shed, or of the Jewish thought, that said that the body would be raised exactly like the one that you have on now. He's going to teach in the passage that we will go over that there will be identity, but there will also be a difference. And this is a fascinating passage in this chapter. And so we come to verse 35 of this chapter, where he will be dealing with two big questions skeptics ask. In verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised With what kind of body do they come? These are questions on the resurrection body. First, how are the dead raised? Secondly, with what kind of body do they come? Greek skeptics would question by what process, the processes and the mechanics, resurrection would happen. And because they knew how quickly the body would decompose, they would ask, what kind of body would arise would arise out of decomposed rubbish? What if the body was burned? What if it was smashed to pieces, eaten by wild animals? What would be raised? If you got your arm ripped off, are you going to be raised armless? And these are scornful and skeptical mockeries. What if your ashes were spread into the wind? Or you were eaten by the fishes of You know, the ocean, and then your bones are scattered in the ocean floor. Hmm? That's how they would ask, right? And Paul's immediate response may have been unexpected for some. He answers this way, you foolish person. It's just one word, you fool. You fool and ignoramus. That's what it means. It's a severe rebuke, and sometimes a harsh rebuke may be needed. When? Well, here we see that it's someone that prides himself on intelligence, but in fact is a fool. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1, where it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. People for 2,000 years have pounced on what they thought could debunk Christianity or Christian thought, only to end up as fools in the end. In last week's passage, we went over the popular saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, then all things are fair play, for tomorrow you die. If there is no resurrection, then hedonistic egoism is all that you have left. Everything should be for self-gratification. Suck the life out of everything. Carpe diem, until you die. Because all you have left then, if there is no resurrection, all you have left is your appetites. And as we've gone over also last week, just like Arisikthun, the chasm of emptiness... And the hunger will only increase as you consume more and more and more only to end up consuming yourself. There being no resurrection may initially be taken and thought of as a convenient philosophy, but very soon we see that it is a self-consuming one. If there is no resurrection, there is no real physical hope, and without physical hope, there is no motivation to live a sanctified or holy life. Your body is just disconnected from your true self. That's what you would think. But that is delusional for people confused, not just about their genders, but even everyone who who would imagine themselves cut off from their bodies as well-intentioned spirits just meandering around. If only I didn't have this body, I could do some good because my intentions are good. So Paul here is quite brilliant, and he has no problem explaining what he has been shown, explaining the resurrection body than to us, And there are four reasons or understandings he gives on the resurrection body. Number one, analogy. He gives this analogy, and it's a powerful analogy. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. Possibly because they really are fools, he gives the most succinct and clear example first. A seed falls and dies. It decomposes. And out of that seed comes a resurrected life. And the plant that rises out of the seed looks very different from the seed that it came out from. We now know that seeds are an important delivery system of genetic information for the plant. I'm not sure how many of you are into botany or plant genetics, but simply put, we know that when you have an acorn, we know what kind of plant or tree that it will produce because the genetic material is the same. You won't plant an acorn and have watermelon come out. Acorns produce oak trees, but if you didn't know this, you wouldn't be able to tell what kind of plant an acorn would produce. Because even though the genetic material is the same, the body of the seed is nothing like the body of the plant. So in the case of our bodies, we will be buried in the ground. And this is why Christians traditionally have burials. And here is where the analogy comes into play. Our bodies will decompose just like the seed, and God will cause us to rise again just like the seed, and our identities will remain intact, but our bodies will have the same and yet different form, just like the acorn and the oak. In fact, we know that a massive tree comes from one tiny seed. And it looks nothing like the seed. It's driven by the same genetic code as the seed, but the body that comes out from the ground will be nothing like the seed itself. That's fascinating that he would use this analogy. So why use this analogy first? Well, Paul is saying that if you don't believe in the resurrection, might as well not believe in plants. Because that would be denying something that is literally happening every year with every harvest cycle. You are seeing and witnessing what God is pointing to when you witness this happen. Imagine holding a seed in your hand and continue to imagine what kind of plant it would produce. In a similar fashion, looking at your body now, you can only imagine what you will look like. When you are glorified, this doesn't take that much of a stretch in imagination at all. Now, with modern technology, we can see babies gestating in their mother's womb until they're ready to be born. You were all fetuses in your mother's womb, and before that, a zygote. If you were to look at yourself as a zygote, would you be able to tell how you would look like now? But if you looked at the zygote, we could still say, that was you. The seed is very clear, and it's a very succinct analogy, helping us to understand the beginnings of understanding the resurrection body. In verse 38, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And adding to that initial point, it's God who chooses the form that you will have just like he designed the stalk to come out of a seed of corn or oak to come out of an acorn. And if he has determined all the plant life and animal life, its forms, we should know that God has designed for us a body that will come forth in the resurrection. Because maybe you think you're an ugly seed. Maybe you think you're a pretty seed. Imagine sunflower seeds comparing and arguing with one another which seed is better looking. They have no idea the flower that it will produce and the beauty that it will house and how incomparable it will be to that of the seed. Bottom line, God has designed for us a body for the resurrection and it will be glorious, much more so than the current one that we have now. And from this analogy, he goes on to his second point of reasoning in verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars— for star differs from star in glory. So, it, so is it with the resurrection of the dead? I'll stop right there. So we've seen that every seed produces its own plant, and this is by the design of God. And now we see in the second point of his reasoning, and he will continue to talk about the arrangement of the body. So first the analogy, and now the arrangement. Some of you may have heard that proteins are the building blocks of life. Every human cell contains protein. And the basic structure of protein is a chain of amino acids, or chains of amino acids. I've heard that there are 600 octadecillion combinations of amino acids. And with those combinations, every single cell is different. God has created so many different kinds of bodies. Is it such a stretch for you to think that God will also create resurrected bodies for those in Christ? And mind you also, he will also resurrect the bodies of unbelievers to their doom and death. You see, flesh differ from species to species And even within the species, there are varieties, countless and distinct. There are heavenly bodies, everything in outer space in the universe astounds us. And then there are earthly bodies, even down to the microscopic and molecular level where life still astounds us. Each one unique in its glory and splendor. Now we know that even each star has a unique light that it gives. It depends on its temperature. And then you see a different hue of color and light. The quality and color of its light is different from every other star. The sun, being only 93 million miles away compared to other stars, has its own unique glory. The moon, where it also has its own unique glory. And then we just talked about the stars with the word glory or splendor, points then to the grandeur of the Creator who designed it, witnessing such heavenly and earthly bodies. These compositions bring us then to a place of awe and wonderment. Awe and wonder is distinctly a human trait. When you listen to a piece of music that is so beautiful that it brings you to a place of tears or awe and you just listen to it, mesmerized. That's a distinctly human trait. Evolutionary biologists and scientists are still trying to figure out why humans would evolve to develop this trait. I honestly doubt they will ever be able to figure that one out because that would Bring us then, and you'll be forced to think about, our telos, our purpose, our goal in life, which is to worship. See, the splendor of these earthly and heavenly structures bringing us to this place of wonderment. I mean, why do you take your kids to the museum or aquarium? Maybe it's just to get them out of the house, or get them away from their iPads. But think about it. Why expose kids to these things? Why expose kids to wonderment? Because it's distinctly a human trait. Why do we need to be placed in a position of awe? As Christians, we recognize the incomprehensible, massive power of God No two species are the same. Even within species, no two bodies are the same. So it will be with the resurrection of the body. It will differ from body to body. That will be our arrangement. There's two more reasonings he gives for the resurrection body. And he continues on in verse 32. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now he's talking about the body. We talked about the analogy of the sea to the arrangement of these bodies. Now he gets into these contrasts or these associations. Remember the chief objection that the Greeks had was that the body was given into decay or that it was perishable. So he lays out these contrasts. What is sown is perishable, raised imperishable, dishonor to glory, weakness to power, natural to spiritual. What is sown, which is the body, is perishable. It's as soon as our cells start to develop, they also start to die. That means as soon as you're born, you start to die. And then there is this fear of this kind of perishing or corruption that every single person faces for their whole life you know in this church I always see kids tell I don't know if it's true for every other church but in this church I always see kids tell their parents that they're old they go to their parents like you're old did you ever think why a kid would find it necessary to point out that their parents are literally dying Could it be then maybe in some dimension that they are preparing to face the inevitable fate of losing their own parents? Or perhaps even the eventual loss of their own life. I'm sure they're not thinking on this level, but perhaps on some dimension. Because our current bodies are perishable. They are perishing. It doesn't matter how many facial supplements you put on or protein supplements that you take. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are or how beautiful you look, how much you can lift, how many accomplishments you have, your body will begin to show dishonor and weakness. And dishonor is the showing of signs of corruption and decay. I read somewhere that on average it's really noticeable once you hit the age of 55. I personally think it's around 21 because sin will take its toll. Your body will show signs of dishonor and decay, and your strength, your beauty, your intelligence will start to fade. I said 21 because for many of us, that's when we start to artificially cover up our dishonor with makeup, fashion, exercise, whatever. And we will, and maybe instinctively perhaps, we will do this because we know deep down that this is dishonorable, that this is weak. We go as far as to dress up those that have died and passed away with makeup and fine clothing. What we are trying to cover up is the ultimate dishonor and the ultimate indignity. But here is the contrast. When we come out of the grave, there will be no dishonor. Rather, there will be a glory, an eternal splendor. There won't be any weakness, but rather power. What was perishable will be raised, and it will have no expiration date. It will be imperishable. There will be no more shoulder or back injuries, no more heart attacks, no more decay or weaknesses. We will be raised in power. Death is no longer victorious, and its sting has been removed. Martin Luther said, quote, as weak as it, and by it he means the human body of believers, as weak as it is now, without all power and ability when it lies in the grave, so strong will it eventually become when the time arrives, so that not a thing will be impossible for it. It will have the mind for it, and it will be so light, so agile, that in an instant it can float here below on earth or above in heaven." And so Paul sums all of this up in verse 44. What is natural is of this life, meaning the flesh. When we go down to the grave, then we are being sown. And as long as we live here on this earth, we will be plagued by corruption, dishonor, weakness, evil, as we remembered yesterday. This is sin taking its due course, and it's taking us along with it. That's why our bodies must be sown, because then, when it is raised, it will be made suitable for the life to come. The natural body dying gives birth to our spiritual body, which will be suited for the spiritual realm. So in Paul's third point of reasoning, he gives us these associations and contrasts. But after this, you might still be confused. What will our new spiritual bodies look like? And so he makes this final point here. In verse 45, he says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is not the only place Paul makes comparisons between Adam and Jesus Christ. He does it here to make the point That in making contrasts and associations, we must also make it of and contrast Adam and Jesus Christ. First, he brings up Adam, quoting from Genesis 2, that he gave us natural life, 2-7, and earthly life. But in contrast with Adam is Christ, who is the last Adam, who gives us spiritual life, a life suited for heaven. Adam being the first means he is the archetype. He is the one that we have descended from. That means his nature is basically our nature. We are like Adam because he is the archetype of the natural man. But Adam not only gave us a natural body, he gave us a natural body with sin. Adam bound us to decay and death. Adam was a bad man. But contrast that with Jesus, who is the archetype that we also are now descended from. He is the archetype of the spiritual man. So if you're wondering what your resurrected body will look like, it will look like the resurrected body of Christ. You see, when the disciples commune with him, that means they broke Jesus broke bread with them and they ate with him. That's when they recognized Jesus. He was able to eat. That means he was in a form that they couldn't initially tell, but when, they bro- when he broke the bread, he- they knew that the essence of who Jesus was, was Jesus. This is Jesus. They recognized him when he broke the bread with them. That means Jesus was able to eat. And while there wasn't a barrier that could confine him, He stood on the ground, and at the same time, he was able to move from place to place, from earth to heaven. I'm very curious to know if we will be able to teleport. It's something science geeks have always imagined, perhaps because, again, perhaps, I'm only speculating, perhaps because science geeks have tapped into a deep desire to be with those that are nearest and dearest to us, no matter the physical distance. So while we don't know every detail of what our resurrected bodies will look like, we do know the archetype. In Philippians 3:20 20-21, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And this is what gets me. I used to teach youth for a while. And the thing that youth students would say to me is, well, I don't know if I really want to go to heaven because I think in heaven all you're doing is singing praises, right? And that seems kind of boring. Why would I want to do that? I get that I should be afraid of hell. So instead of going to hell, I guess singing praises is a better alternative. And then we grow up, no one has corrected that kind of thinking. You have no idea. No one preached these verses to you. You still think, oh, I just got to change my heart. I just got to appreciate. I'll sing his praises forever in heaven. You will sing his praises forever in heaven, but it won't be with this body. Can you imagine the body that you will be given to even radiate the glory that he's been given to you so that you could bring it back to God? What kind of worship do you think that you could give with the resurrected body? The fact that we don't even think about this is the lack of scriptural knowledge that so many of us are suffering from. It will be a glorious body. It will be something that will be infinitely different, but The analogy that we've seen is the difference between an acorn and an oak tree. Imagine that. So here's what we do know. There is a resurrection. And the Lord has prepared for us a body fit for a full life in heaven. We will have the splendor that he has designed for us. A body in which his glory will radiate from. A body that will eat and enjoy food, but will not get hungry. A body that will walk, but without the impediments of physical obstacles. A body that will not age or decay with no expiration date, a body that God has designed to be far greater than what we have now, so much so that it will be as incomprehensible as trying to figure out what kind of tree something will look like by just looking at the seed, a body no longer given into sin, but rather will be full of joy and complete satisfaction, never in wanting, but always in shalom and peace. And my final statement is this. And we are given this not because we have done anything to deserve such glory and such splendor, but we will be given this because it will be based on the work and person of Jesus Christ. It's because of who he is and what he has done. It's based on that we will be awarded with this incredible spiritual body. And thanks be to God and praise be to his holy and magnificent and all-powerful name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise of resurrection, where we once lived with fear through your Son, Jesus Christ, the person and work that we have witnessed in the Scriptures, and from the witnesses that have come down for 2,000 years, we are so ever grateful. We know that it is because you have opened our hearts that we are able to hear, and Lord, we pray that today we wouldn't harden our hearts, but rather... We would listen, and we would repent, and we would turn back to you. God, give us this grace. Grant us this mercy. We live in an evil and dying world. We pray that we would be able to escape its judgment by holding on to the only way out. Let's take this time to pray, and just as the scripture has admonished and encouraged and taught us, Let's pray that we could live a life that will be worthy of the calling that he's given us, that we will be looking toward the resurrection that he has promised us in Christ, that we will continue to live a sanctified life, striving for holiness, looking to please our Savior and being full in the life that he has promised. Let's pray.